Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And remember, while there are no commercials in these episodes, you can always support the show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade or by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Today we're rewinding all the way back to the personal mobile studio days when I was broadcasting from my 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI. We're going back to episode 125, Mental Simulations of Disaster Scenarios. This originally aired January 19, 2009. Another day, another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Uh, today is Monday, January 19th. I believe we're up to episode 126 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, conducted as is almost always the case from my personal mobile studio, which is my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI as I make my way between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Um, I'm not big on chatting about the local stuff that goes on around here much. I know when I listen to nationally syndicated radio and the guy starts talking, well, here in New York or here in San Francisco, and he goes into a long diatribe about it, I get bored. I'm like, dude, I tuned in for things that matter to me. But uh, one thing I do want to point out here, because I guess it's kind of relevant no matter where you are, because you're probably dealing with yourself, is what our weather is doing right now. Um, if the weather would stay the way it is this week, and it's going to be all this week, I could be gardening like it was summer right now. It's 53 degrees this morning, and uh, it'll hit in the 70s today. Now, the funny thing is, uh, when I did my podcast on Friday, driving to work with the sun up, I left a little bit late. Uh, it was almost 8 o'clock, and it was 28 degrees. So 28 degrees on Friday, 53 degrees on Monday. These are morning lows. So that's kind of interesting, I guess. Uh, hopefully it doesn't take away from the show that I brought that up, but I just had to share it with you. And then there's one other thing that I have to share with you. I don't like to listen to those syndicated radio guys talking about, you know, football usually either, but I have to say something here because I am one of the biggest Pittsburgh Steelers fans on the planet. So, of course, my team is going to the Super Bowl. That is the good news. The bad news is my son is probably the biggest Eagles fan, at least in the state of Texas, uh, where the Eagles are not exactly liked by the dro- you know the droves of uh, Cowboy fans, and his Eagles fell to the Cardinals. And uh, the reason that's bad is, one, I kind of like the Eagles myself. I don't have anything against them. I uh, really would like to see those guys win the Super Bowl at some point. Uh, but the other side of that was it was a chance for us to have one of the most amazing Super Bowls that could happen in our household, and it's just not to be in Fate sometimes is a cruel mistress, and this is a little bit of what we're going to talk about today, so I am trying to tie it in. So there's the local stuff from uh, from Jack, and um, 
It's not your cup of tea. Don't worry, I'm done with it. Let's move on to what today's subject is. Today's subject is going to be kind of why I do this show. And what's really out there? Why are we even prepping in the first place as a guy cuts across four lanes of traffic in front of me? You know, are we crazy in this community? Or do we know something others don't? Or are we aware of something others do not? Particular, or not particularly aware of. And there's this one, knowing things and being aware of things. And I want to talk about that a little bit as well today. There are kind of what I call the tinfoil hack guys. Now remember, I'm not hard on these tinfoil hack guys. I think that they serve a purpose. And the tinfoil hack guys are the guys that are way out on the edge of every conspiracy theory. And the new world order is coming to take away everything you own tomorrow and put you to work in a, you know, a death camp somewhere like the Nazis did to the Jews. That's, that's where these, some of these guys are. And then there's varying levels between, you know, that's the extremist, and then there's what I consider the, you know, the, the logical thought thought out modern survivalists that, you know, I kind of try to put myself into, and maybe I gravitate a little bit toward the uh, tinfoil hat side myself, but somewhere near a moderate center. And then there's the, the, the person that's like, yeah, I'm going to throw some water in the house and uh, make sure there's some extra food, and that's pretty much it, and I'm not really going to pay attention, and that's kind of the way to the other side, right? And uh, every survivalist, if you're a survivalist, is somewhere in that spectrum. And I think the difference a lot of times between the people that are way out in the conspiracy world and the people that are a little bit more grounded are we know that we're aware of the potential for a threat. And a lot of the conspiracy folks think they've cracked the code and they know the exact shape, form, and timing of the threat. And I think that's really all that separates the two. And as I go through some scenarios today, I'll try to explain what I mean. Because the issue is, are you letting the the, the way by which the threat will occur alter your preparations for it. In other words, if there's some sinister, evil group out there that wants to exterminate 70% of the population, uh, it develops a vaccine or a virus capable of doing it, vaccinates their own kind and releases it on mankind, it's a really bad thing. It's terrible. And it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. It is out in the tinfoil world. But if a natural virus mutates to a point where it has the capability to wipe out 70% of the planet and begins a global pandemic, the result is the same. So the person that's, that's like the paranoid sits around and they worry about somebody cooking this up in a laboratory, and the person that's grounded in reality says... That could happen. It could happen naturally. There's a million ways that this could happen. And history has shown us that diseases mutate and they morph and they get out and they cause damage and destruction. So I'm aware of the threat and I'm aware of what I need to do to prepare for it, understanding that a disease threat, the best thing you can do as long as you have not yet been contaminated is to quarantine yourself for, you know, quarantine yourself from anybody that may have been. So for many people, that would just simply be bugging in. You know, I mean, paying your bills by mail. I mean, it might have to get to that point. You might think, well, there, now we're back out in the paranoidville. Not when the disease is running rampant. Now, when you turn your TV on every day and you see emergency rooms backed up out the door and people dying before they get checked in. And that's what can happen. Again, how it occurs 
Why it occurs doesn't mean as much of the fact that it could occur. There are scientists out there experimenting with these, these killer bugs, and they're playing with them in laboratories. And some of these guys have no intention of ever letting them loose on society. They're actually mutating them on purpose in forced and controlled environments, very secure environments, and they're trying to figure out before it occurs naturally in a laboratory what could happen and how could we kill it before it occurs. They're trying to look for vaccines. Their goal is noble. Is there a chance that one of those superbugs somehow, be it through accident, be it through negligence, or be it through malice, could get out of that laboratory and into society? The answer is yes. Again, we don't need to know that there's some kind of conspiracy out there to do it, to accept the fact that it could just happen spontaneously. It could happen because of the things that humans are doing. What we do know is that today, with the way that people travel, the way that people move around the globe so quickly, that if such a disease does strike, and if it has any, you know, some kind of a long gestation period, which for a virus is seven days, ten days, before it really begins to manifest itself, that gives people that much time to spread it before they become truly ill and people start getting on airplanes and in taxi cabs and in buses and in subways and in rail systems and on boats that it has the potential to be around the world before we're aware of the problem and the survivalist simply says you know what it could happen and I could be one of the first people infected I could just happen to be somewhere and be exposed and if I get infected I get infected and there's not much I could do about it then other than hope they have a cure or hope I survive. But the odds are, with 6 trillion or 6 billion people in the world, that I won't be one of the first ones infected. The odds are that I will be aware that something bad is happening and why it's happening won't matter as much as that it is happening. And having the ability to not have to go to the drugstore or go anywhere for two months or three months or four months or six months if I have to, to survive will be very, very useful in that situation. So the interesting thing about that is the same preps that you make for just about any major disaster, which are the storage of food and a way to procure water, a way to produce some of your own food, staying as low on debt as possible, trying to have some reserve funds so that if you can't work, you can still pay the basic bills. All right. Securing your investment so when the economy tanks, you do not lose everything that you have. Not putting every dime you save into tax-deferred, 401K, 403B, you know, IRA, Roth IRA, whatever it is. Not putting all your savings into those so you have some form of liquid savings. That all those things work perfectly to combat the threat of global pandemic. And again, it doesn't matter who, if anyone, is behind the threat. It just matters that the threat's out there. And it's that type of threat and others that have made me pick my head up and look around and start assessing the situation with a more acute, lasers, you know, laser-focused vision on the individual threats and where they come from. I'm not saying that where they come from is not important. I'm not saying that understanding them is not important. I'm not saying that discussing them, evaluating them, and, and making a real legitimate assessment is, you know, how imminent is this? It's not only useful, but in some levels it's entertaining 
training for the mind. And, and it's also useful as a mental exercise because you start evaluating, well, what could cause a pandemic? What would it look like? Who would it affect first? How would it spread? What would be the government's response to it? As you do this, you start to put your mind into the scenario of experiencing the pandemic. And if you do that with logic... Right? Don't start freaking out and digging a hole in the ground to hide it. Right? You take good common sense approaches to, well, I would do this. If I did do this, what would happen? Would it work? If it didn't, what's the flaw? How would I adjust? Now, this is a lot like doing a drill in the military. Right? When I was in the Army, sometimes they would put us on alert status. And we had different alerts. And you know, one type of alert was you get all your battle gear. You get everything that you're supposed to grab on a deployment, packed in a rucksack and a duffel bag, and you head to the flight line. And every once in a while, they'd pull in all the helicopters. So it was an aviation unit. And we would load up every person in that unit would load up, except for some people that might be responsible for moving some of the vehicles if the vehicles were going to be part of the deployment. They would drive the vehicles to a shipping point where they would be going on ships if the deployment was real. And then we would sit there and we would wait. And only at the last second would we know if it was real or not. All right. Now, sometimes we knew it wasn't real because somebody would leak it and say, hey, there's going to be an alert tomorrow. And it was usually command because they didn't want somebody to be off, you know, in the northern part of the country on a, you know, self-given leave on a day that they had off, not be able to make it in. Right, which I guess was kind of a mistake, but it happened on occasion. But on some occasions, we had no idea. Everything was beautiful. Hey, I was planning on going out to the bar tonight, weren't you? Yeah. What do you think? Is this one real or not? I don't know. We didn't hear anything about it. This one looks real. And then they would say, stand down. And we would all go back to our units, and we put all our gear away. And usually they'd use it as an excuse, lay your gear on your racks, and they'd do an inspection. And then we'd put it all away, and we'd go back to our jobs, and we'd you know, just begin doing life as always. And we'd probably go out and have that beer that night if the alert happened early enough in the morning anyway. Sometimes the alert was simply everybody assemble at the barracks and wait for their instructions. We'd all go back. We'd get in a great big company formation. Everybody would be present and accounted for. And they would say, stand down and go back. And there were all these different drills that we would run, checking our combat readiness. Now, part of it was an evaluation. Are we ready? But there was a much more important component to it than that, that most of the young soldiers, including myself at the time, did not understand. Should it have ever happened for real? It would not be the first time that you've experienced it in your mind. That is the biggest difference. Now, once bullets start flying, that is the first time. Once you're aware that they're going to start flying for real, that is the first time. But your mind often doesn't know the difference between a simulation and reality if you do a proper simulation in your head. So as you start to evaluate threats, if you start to, you know, more, don't just look at them and go, yeah, that's there, I better put some more food in there. Think to yourself, what would I do? What would I do? Would it work? What's the flaw? What's the mistake? What am I missing? Okay? If everything didn't go according to plan, what's the most likely thing that could ruin my plan? My plan is I'm going to pack my family up and we're going to bug out to a remote location that we have available and we're prepared. What could throw a kick in that plan? You can't bug out. They've locked the quarantine down in your area. Your area is considered imminent threat. And you cannot leave. Another thing that can go wrong, you're at work, your family's at home, they're locked down, and you can't get in. 
These are the different things you have to think. Now, what would I do? Would I have a means of communications with home? You know, where would I go? What would I do in the interim? You know, well, how would I give them instructions? How would I give them comfort? These are the things you have to start thinking about. This is why I do this show. And this is why sometimes I take a threat and I pick it apart. And I beat it to death. So you look at it and you go, man, that could happen. Because I, I don't care whether you believe it could happen or not, really. All I want you to do is take it seriously enough that you start running the simulations in your head. What would this mean to me? Let's try a different one. Right now, people look out and think that the world is actually a pretty peaceful place. I mean, sure, we're, we're blowing some stuff up in Iraq, but we're about done with that. We're blowing some stuff up in Afghanistan, but we're, we're winding that one into about the middle, I would say, of that operation. That's a much more difficult operation than Iraq was or even had to be. But we look at the Afghan war and we say, other than a terrorist threat, which existed anyway, that, that war doesn't seem to have the potential to turn into a global conflict. If it did, it would have happened already. So we look around and we think about, you know, the old days of the Cold War and go, this is pretty peaceful compared to, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, and us, and a few various assorted others with their fingers a couple inches away from a big red button that annihilates planet Earth. But the reality is the global war can break out at any time. It really could. And there's some real tensions in place. And the economic mess that we're in this in this nation has begun to spread across the entire planet. So people don't understand. It's not the United States that's in a recession or a depression, depending on how honest you are about it. It's the world. The world's in a global recession right now, this second. And some countries are feeling it harder than others. Russia is feeling it particularly hard. Why? Because oil is $35 a barrel. Russia built its economy, it built its entire system, its entire network, its entire distribution apparatus, its entire exploration and extraction apparatus around a floor of oil of $70 a barrel. Now that might sound insane, but when they were doing it, oil was at like 85 and going up. And as they continued to do that, oil went up to $140 a barrel. And the Russians were smart. They didn't bite. They didn't say, okay, now we can afford to you know, start ratcheting this stuff up. They said, we're going to keep the floor at 70 It seems reasonable, 2007, 2008, for oil to have a floor of $70 a barrel. If you check today, oil is about 35 bucks. And that might be good for you when you're filling your car or your SUV or whatever it is you drive. And, hey, I'm not knocking you driving. Whatever you drive, whatever you want. And the fact that you're paying less for gas, I'm happy for you individually. I'm happy for America as a whole that in spite of this down economy, that's one bright spot is that we're paying less for gas, at least for now. But to the Russians, this is financial disaster. Basically, they're losing money every time they, they pump and ship a barrel of oil. Losing. And you'd say, well, why don't they just reduce their cost of extraction to a floor of 35? Well, it's not that simple. Everything's in place already. A lot of things are, like, halfway done. And $35 a barrel, honestly, is difficult for us to extract oil at $35 a barrel. It's hard for companies here in America to do it. In fact, it's it's near impossible. Don't look for Exxon to be posting record-breaking profits again on the next quarterly dividend report. Because $35 oil is killing people. 
the refineries are doing uh, okay, and then the retailers they actually have a little bit more room for margin now because they can they can bump that one cent a gallon that they were charging you in profit to four cents a gallon, and, and you're like, oh, I don't dollar fifty four. Well, you know, okay, I'll pay that because the psychology of pricing has t- told you that anything below two bucks is just dirt cheap. I mean, I I, I just can't complain because I just paid four a year ago. So, what does that all mean? That means that you have the nation of Russia in financial turmoil. Financial turmoil that can be solved overnight if the global price of oil goes back up to around 70 bucks a barrel, which the Arabs, the Venezuelans, and just about every major oil-producing country, including Mexico, want. In fact, this is what you got to really get. So does ExxonMobil. So does Taxico. So does every U.S. producer of oil. So does everybody that explores for oil in the United States. You know the, the countless private companies that do exploration? They, they want it too because they can't attract investors right now. Because investors are going at 35 bucks a barrel, even if you hit a gusher, it's going to take me four years to recoup my investment. And if the well goes dry by then, I'm break even. So everybody in the world of oil, anyway, wants oil to go back up. So the potential for some kind of conflict to explode somewhere that just so happens to push you back up is out there. So global war from that is, has a potential. You know, if the Russians start bombing the wrong people and we get involved, you know, you've got... It, it could even turn into like, you know, like a Vietnam scenario where it's like us fighting them or them fighting us through like intermediaries. But all of those things would drive oil up. And all of those things have the potential to then erupt into a broader conflict that puts us into the, you know, even if we don't get bombed over here, right? Nobody attacks us directly. Think about World War II. How long has it been since the United States has, has been told, hey, you know what, people, you guys need to buy war bonds so the country's going to go broke. We need to fund the war. All right? You need to grow your garden because we don't have enough food for everybody. Um, you don't get, I don't care how much money you have, you don't get to fill your car, you're going to be in rationing. You're going to get rationed for food, you're going to get rationed for material goods, you're going to get rationed for gas. All of these things are potential results from a global war. Since the potential's there, whether it's the Illuminati pulling puppet strings to make it happen, or a natural consequence around the globe, it doesn't really matter what the catalyst is from a standpoint of are you prepared for it. And again, you start running the scenarios in your head. I remember right after 9-11, we invaded Afghanistan, and we started talking about invading Iraq. And my son, who was, God, I guess 11, 12 years old at the time, fairly young still, looked straight in my eye and said, a war can't come here, can it? And it was the first question that I had the potential to lie to him about to make him feel better that I did not. Because it wasn't fair to say, no, a war could never come here. What I ended up telling him was, Matt, look, um, I don't think this war is going to come here. Not in the way that you're asking. Now, the reality is it already did. It already happened on the day that we got attacked, and that's what the people are responding to right now. But could someone try to attack us again in a more organized and larger fashion? Yes, yes, it could happen. But I trust that our military is the best in the world and we'll be able to defend ourselves. And we know what we're doing and we'll stay the hell out of the way and let them do their job.
and I'll make sure I do everything I can to protect you, but I can't tell you no to that question because it's going to be a lie. You know what? I learned something that day. I learned that kids only ask questions when they're prepared for the answer because he didn't freak out. He didn't even have trouble going to sleep that night. So there's a little side counseling for you. When your kid asks you a question, he's prepared for the answer as long as you format it the right way. And you make sure that you address it down to his level of understanding and expectation at the time. You know, as we look at other threats, you know, to me one of the greatest threats that we have right now is to the agricultural system. We have a company out there called Monsanto that's been doing genetic manipulations of the seed stocks. And in theory what they're doing is ensuring that they will have food in the future. That's, that's what they market themselves as. But this is a country that can't be trusted. A, a, a company that just cannot be trusted. They've done so many things in their past. That one can only actually describe as evil. And I, I'm hesitant to use that word with just about anybody. Because I believe that most people that do evil I actually think they're doing it for good. They justify it. You look at some of the things these people have done, and you go, there is no justification. When when they hide the fact that they've infected an entire town with PCBs, and then they say we had to do it to protect our our investors, that's evil. And these guys are manipulating food. And they're doing things like infecting seeds with a gene called the terminator gene. So in other words, they patent a seed that you can't grow or save unless you pay them a fee. And then their seed infects other seed crops, and then they go sue people for stealing, even though it was their seed that pollinated other seed and got out into the biosphere. And the courts back them up. And they say, well, that's not good enough. We'll never be able to keep a hand on this. So what we need to do is we need to make sure that somebody's using our patented seeds, that they have to come back for us. So they create a terminator gene in the seed. And the terminator gene says, okay, seed, you've done your job. You've produced one crop. Die. And if the farmer does save his seed, it won't grow. Bad enough in of itself. But they have a special chemical. Now, they spray this Terminator gene seed with their chemical, and it then does reproduce. It turns the Terminator gene off if it's sprayed at a certain time, and they grow these in their little controlled farms. What if that process fails? With millions and millions of farmers relying on these forms of seed, what if that process fails one year? What if it doesn't come back? How long is it going to take to restart the seed banks from conventional seeds? How many of them will have been infected? So the problem is when you put out genetically modified corn, it goes everywhere. Corn can pollinate for miles. Those little tassels you see waving in the wind that look so pretty, little dust particles fly off of those. That's a pollen. And this stuff infects other things. So around the world we could have agricultural failure. That's just one way. Another way is simply driven by environmental uh, effects. Now, anybody that's listened to this show often knows I'm not a big, I have not signed on to the theory of man-made global warming. I don't think the gas coming out of your tailpipe is making my planet hotter. In fact, the fact that it was just 24 degrees for an overnight low in Dallas kind of tells me that this global warming thing has a little bit of a flaw to it. I won't go into that today because whenever I talk about it, I get really angry because I believe it's being used to manipulate people into doing things we would never sign on to. 
But I do believe in climate change. And I don't believe in man-made climate change. If you've noticed, all the global warming freaks now use the term climate change. That way, they don't get into the gotchas of, well, the temperature's going down. Oh, well, we're causing that too, right? The reality is, if you look at the temperature of the Earth over 60 million years, for instance, you'll find that the Earth is not like a human being with this nice, level, you know, normal temperature. What you realize is there isn't a normal temperature when you take time snapshots of 60 million years. There's no average. I guess there always is an average, but the average is meaningless because it's so adversely affected by so many highs and so many lows and so many irregular periods. It was... The, the United States existed as a nation, all right, after the end of the Revolutionary War. And technically, we were still in the last vestiges of the Little Ice Age when this nation was formed. That's not that long ago. And that Little Ice Age lasted for almost 500 years. And crops froze and died the world over. And people before the Little Ice Age were very heavily dependent on cereal grains. Corn, wheat, rye, barley. Today, you might not eat a lot of wheat, rye, and barley. I'll ask you if you drink any beer. Or even a lot of corn product. You may not personally. But globally, around the world... These are still the staples that feed people. Many third world nations, the only thing that funds their economy is the production of those cereal grains. And if we have a major climate shift, which is possible from things like solar inactivity, uh, just a natural climate change, conveyor belts in the, in the Atlantic changing, all of these things have been you know, postulated as to what has caused all these climate changes in the past. The only thing that you know for certain is when something has occurred a lot of times in the past, the potential for it to occur again exists. So it doesn't matter if it's uh, Joe Yuppie's SUV, or a, a shift that's naturally occurring, all that matters is that we have to accept that the average temperature could go up or down over a relatively short period of time and cause massive disruption to grow global agriculture and therefore the distribution of agricultural products. Now, I did a show in the past where I explained something that to me is one of the most frightening things that's ever occurred. The United States used to be viewed as the breadbasket of the world. We fed the world. In fact, we fed the Soviet Union during the Cold War. That's a reality. They could not produce enough food in the Soviet Union to feed their own people. And we sold the massive amounts of grain at, at relatively very low cost and kept their country surviving. We could have pinched that off, but we didn't. We did the humanitarian thing. All right. Today, the United States is a net importer of food. That means that today we import more total food than we produce. In other words, if every nation in the world stopped importing food to the United States and we stopped exporting food to the rest of the world and just kept what we had, 
we can't feed ourselves at current levels. Now, I believe people could survive. I believe everybody could survive because we waste a lot in this country. And if people made those adjustments, that would change. But this is a trend that's that's not going to reverse anytime soon, and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is look at oil. There was a time when Saudi Arabia, are you crazy? The United States was the oil capital of the world. We had and we produced more oil than anybody. We exported oil like crazy in this country at the beginning. And then slowly we started to import some oil and we started to reducing our exports. And now we don't export a drop. And we are a huge net importer of oil now. And we do not have the ability to sustain our own energy in this country. Food's going the same way. Now, again, the thing is, it doesn't matter why. Whether it's the oil issue and peak oil, whether it's climate change, doesn't matter if it's a yuppie's tailpipe or it's a solar activity level, or it's the angle of the Earth in response to the sun, or it's some glitch in the Earth's orbit that occurs every once in a while, or it's a bunch of volcanic eruptions, all right, or if it's deforestation, which to me that is a threat. You can't keep doing what we're doing there without causing some kind of an impact. With all of these things together, the potential's there. And what do you do to prepare for it? You have food stored. You have the ability to produce and grow your own food in somewhat controlled conditions. Just because agriculture suffers around the world doesn't mean that the home gardener has to suffer. There's always plants that will grow in just about any condition short of absolute baking, broiling desert. Or, you know, absolute Antarctic freeze. And if we end up in either one of those in the, the, you know, the more temperate parts of the world where most people live, it it, it may be all but over at that point, unless you can find your way into the limestone caves in Kentucky and some place like that. So that's the extreme. It's not what you prepare for. But a major global shortage in food? That's something you can prepare for quite well. And it just so happens to be the same things you do to prepare for a potential for a global pandemic. Or to prepare for complete collapse of the economy. You see, that's the thing about this. All of these disaster scenarios basically have the same preparation. Stored food, stored water, reduced debt. Okay. Savings. Some gold and or silver. Or some silver and or gold, your choice. An awareness of your surroundings, a plan. Knowing where you will go if you can't stay where you are. Knowing how you will enact staying where you are if you can. Planning for the worst. Hoping for the best. Living a better life today if times get tougher, even if they don't. Alright? Living today in a way that the most drastic disruptions you can think of will have the most minimal effect possible on your life. It's all commonality. And one day I sat down and I realized that as I was evaluating, to do, you know, doing this show and started doing the first couple episodes, I realized, hey, you know what? That's my message. That you do the same things for everything. At least in principle and practice on the most broad levels. Now, there's certain things that you do for one threat you don't do for another, but the preparations are almost identical. Documentation. Where do I go? How do I get there? What do I do if I can't get there by my primary route? What's my secondary route? If my plan is, I have an uncle up in Colorado, and if my region is affected, I'm going to leave Texas and go to Colorado. How how many ways can I get there? 
How many ways could be shut down? How many ways could be disrupted? How long will it take? Can I get there on a tank of fuel, even in heavy traffic? If I can't, do I have enough reserve gas? How much reserve gas should I have to make that trip? Right? These things are all the same because it could be a pandemic that has you fleeing. It creates the same questions, the same scenarios. So my goal with this show, what I'm trying to do, is to get you without freaking out, without being illogical, without being irrational, to start running these scenarios in your own mind. To start saying, what if? To simply ask that question. Because if more people in New Orleans had said, what if the levees break? What if there's a flood? What if one day they tell us to get out of here and I don't have a car? How will I get out of here? What will I do? What is my plan? Who can I depend on? Who can I work with? How can I get out of here? I live in a city between a lake and the sea. And it's lower than the lake and the sea. And there's hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico every freaking year. What if there would have been a lot less death in New Orleans? If people had simply asked the question... It was not a slow governmental response that killed thousands in New Orleans. Mostly, it was apathy. It was apathy up until the threat arrived. And that, overall, folks, I believe is our biggest threat. And that's why I do this show. My show is designed to destroy your apathy. So that you can't sit around and not ask what if anymore. So that you at some point have to say, well, you know what? Darn it. Looking around at this planet, crap happens all the time. Somebody's killing somebody every day. Food is short somewhere every day. The planet has experienced ice ages and volcanic eruptions, meteor impacts. There's been pandemics. All of these are long shots. But all of them together, sooner or later, one of them, one of them is going to impact my life. What if? What can I do to make a difference? What will happen if I try that? Is it going to work? If it failed, what would I do next? Where would I go? How would I get there? Again, I know it sounds repetitive, but that's the commonality. Every disaster. If it is troops marching on the United States, actual physical invasion, it's still the same scenarios. How would I hole up? How would I avoid the conflict? How would I engage in the conflict if that's what I want to do? All right. What would my engaging in the conflict mean to my family? Am I willing? I'm willing to risk myself. Am I willing to risk them? Would people try to steal from me in this scenario? How would I defend myself? Am I comfortable defending myself that way? Is it a realistic method of defense? How can I make the situation look like we don't have much, so there's not much to steal? How can I make the situation look like, you know what, if they do get in to steal, there's not much for them to take, and most of our preparations are hidden somewhere? How do I survive whatever comes my way? What if? That's the key question, what if? And if you can start asking yourself that question in a legitimate, calm, rational way, you'll start to realize that the power exists in you. To everything short of, bam, you're dead this second. As long as you're still alive, the power exists in you to make a difference in the survival for yourself and for your family and for those you care about. Even your stupid freaking relatives that spend money like it's water, they're deeply mired in debt, they have not enough food on their shelves to last three freaking days, 
If you really care about them, your power exists to help them as well. Either by making them aware and hoping that one day they'll wake up, or by doing enough preps that you could take them in in some scenarios. There may be some scenarios where you have to say, dude, you're a grasshopper, I'm an ant, bye. But in most scenarios, those, those relatives you could help. The human being exists as a survivalist. We should have never made it. We should have never made it. Do you know there's a bottleneck where the global population of humans got down into around four or 5,000 through some sort of global catastrophe? We're not even sure what it was. But we can look at the genetic code and we can see it. We can see it bottleneck down and broaden back out. Humans have survived every major disaster the world has thrown at us. And the ones that survived have always been the ones that have asked the question in advance, what if, and understood when tragedy struck, I now must take care of myself and those I care for. I now have the power to survive or to die. It is now not about winning, it's about survival. That's a lesson that I learned from a former Russian Olympic athlete uh, named Valer Astov, who taught me the difference for the combat sports for the Russian Olympians, who were so dominant at it, was we weren't trained to try to win. We were trained to survive, and through survival, look for the opportunity to win. Your goal is survive. Play for a stalemate, and wait. And if you play for a stalemate, sooner or later your opponent will show you a weakness and that's when you strike. And be sure it's a real weakness. Be sure you're not, they're not playing the same game you are. Know before you commit. Right? And people that, are survived, that really have survived over thousands and tens of thousands of years have been people that have done just that. They looked for the opportunity to survive. And they've won by succeeding in their survival. So I hope today has maybe just made you take a look at everything you do in a new light. And if you're a new person to survivalism or someone's trying to introduce you to my show, hopefully it's made you realize that not all survivalists are camo-wearing militia types running around the woods in northern Michigan. And again, if you're one of those people, I have nothing against you. I'm just telling you that there's all types and all stripes of survivalists. And that the more people that prep, the less disastrous a disaster has to be. Because the less people have to go to the street and beg for food from Uncle Scam or steal it from their neighbor. And the more people that are prepared to defend what they have with force if necessary, the less looting will be. If as soon as the looting and the rioting start, a bunch of looters and rioters end up horizontal and or in jail, all right, the total number of looters will be much less than if they're successful. The more success they have, the more frenzy it will breed. All of these things revolve around some level of community. Survivalists typically have a, a mentality of being individualists. But in this sense, you need to be reaching out to your fellow man. That's why we have things like our show, our forum, and the many other forums that are out there. People are beginning to communicate with each other. A lot of things were held secret for many, many years. Because people are realizing that there is power in numbers and that our numbers in the survivalist community are growing. And we're reaching more and more people every day because they're losing their jobs. They're watching 60% of their retirement wiped out overnight. The only people that were screaming, get out, get out, get out, were us. We were saying, this is, this is bad, get out. You know, just go to cat. If we're wrong, you'll lose six months of returns. But get out, this thing is bad. And all the experts said, no, 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 if you've got ten years, just stay with it. And that advice 
if it was given to you 10 years ago, made you lose money. The market's down from 10 years ago, right now, this second. And all of these things are leading people to understand the risks and the realities of the new world. What we're seeing created by man and what we're seeing Mother Nature remind us of. Those two things are coming together. And my only request to you today is to start asking a question. Look at your kids. Look at your wife. Look at the loved ones around you. What if? What if I lost my job? What if there was a pandemic? What if somebody broke into our house and stole everything we had? What if our house burned down? From the, from the most realistic everyday occurrence to what you think is the most far out, just ask yourself those questions. Start running those scenarios. As you shape your life around preparation, what you'll find is your current lifestyle getting better. Sounds crazy, but it's true. And everybody in this community that's tried it and done it with sane, rational measures, instead of freaking out and spending their life savings on MREs, everyone that I've ever heard from that's done it for any length of time has said it's improved my life. That's what we're all about here. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.